So it's not about optimizing the traffic or optimizing like the page after the fact. I think that's it's too late to do that. So it's more like optimizing the actual content before you publish it. Like part of the overall strategy, we're publishing a lot about how people report on things, how they track performance about things, like how they monetize certain things, how they're tracking it, where they're getting data from. You're listening to Content Logistics, a podcast for B2B marketers looking to build a content engine that drives revenue. In each episode, Camille Trent interviews the marketers behind the best content marketing flywheels and uncovers the tactical aspects of content production from first draft to first customer. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Content Logistics. I'm your host, Camille Trent, and this episode is brought to you by my good friends, Tristan Justin over at Motion. Motion is a full-stack podcasting agency for busy B2B tech marketers like myself, probably like you, wanting to launch a podcast. So if you have been thinking about launching a podcast or have one that you're not super happy with, they will help with the production side. They will help you distribute the podcast. If you're just starting out, they will actually help you with the questions, how to frame them, how to run a good show. So really an end-to-end service. And if you are looking to launch a podcast, definitely give them a shout. Today, our guest is John Benini. He is the director of marketing at Databox. He also has his own community, Some Good Content, which I'm actually in and recommend. And we talk about community-led SEO, which yes, it is possible. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad we were finally able to nail down a time here. I know, I know. It was it was coming. <laughs> I I was on your podcast and like, look, you have to be on my podcast yeah, now. That's the deal. To be fair, it's the deal that we struck. To be fair, you did say that like six eight months ago, and here we are. So <laughs> <laughs> it happened. Yeah. I true true to my word and your word. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair. So the reason though, like the reason that I've been wanting to talk, one, you obviously know something about about good content, some good content. So there's check one, but then two is this idea of community and community content has really, if we were to look at the Google Trends graphs, has probably gone up in the last like few years. This this idea of community, this idea of community content marketing. And so people still don't understand how to do it. It hasn't been systematized yet, except that it has just in a different way. And so I think the way that we're thinking about community is evolving, but early days, Databox was doing that. And so I listened to a podcast that your CEO was on where he talked about how a couple things, how you included subject matter experts in your content, but then also how you turned that into a scalable system. That's really hard to do. How do you scale community-centric right. content? And so that's yeah. really what I wanted to have you on for to talk about. So tell me just a little bit about how that came about and, and the story behind community content at Databox. Yeah, it certainly is like in vogue now. And I don't think... To be honest, I don't think we ever called it like community-led content or anything like that. But it's something that actually I think our CEO, who you mentioned, Pete Caputa, spent over a decade at HubSpot and built out the partner program there. And in in his later year, I think it was like his last year there, he was helping sort of build up the sales blog, HubSpot's sales blog. And he was doing a lot of writing. And obviously, he has a lot of inherent knowledge about sales. He worked and led sales teams for you know a decade plus. And so he had a lot of personal experience to draw on when he was blogging about sales. But he told me something that he felt like after a while, it's like you circle the block so many times on the things that you know about and you start to like, all right, what do I write about now? And so he started 
including the insights of like other salespeople and like asking other people questions and then including their quotes in the article, which then gave him room and space to kind of create a narrative around what they were saying. So he wasn't just drawing on his own sort of point of view and expertise because that, you know, is that scalable? So he kind of brought that to Databox in the early days and it looks a lot different now than it did then, but that was really like the start of the content program at Databox, which is like, let's not just take a single point of view on the content. You know, it's 2017. Um, it, it's SEO and all, it's already highly competitive, you know, especially in the MarTech space and B2B and what we were doing. So let's not just do what everyone else is doing, which is let's write another article about how to do X, Y, Z. Instead, let's ask the like the people who would be our customers and our early customers how they're doing it. Let's just report on like how the real experts are out here doing it because so much of the knowledge and expertise that maybe, you know, corresponds with like your product or your company isn't always internal, right? Like we can talk about it, sure, but like our customers feel the pain and know that, know it much better than we do. So yeah, that's really how it all started is like, let's help tell the stories of other people. And in doing so, we're going to have a much more unique spin on the things that we're writing about rather than just coming out with another how-to about, I don't know, how to run your weekly reporting meeting or something like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because before I get into the logistics of like community content, how we do that, I'm curious about balancing those two things. So balancing your point of view as a software company or that's selling a specific product that helps you do a specific thing, right? And and the community, right? Like, and the viewpoints and the point of view of others. And how do you have a strong enough strategy in place, basically, at the beginning, where those things are pretty aligned, where like the point of view matches, and they're not going to necessarily say things that are outside of what you're trying to accomplish? Just how do you balance like a point of view of your company and your mission statement, right? And then like what you're going to get from a community source, yeah. subject matter experts? Two things. One, this is why it's a beautiful thing to start with your customers, right? Because when we're asking them how they, how do you prepare for, you know, a board meeting or a weekly marketing meeting, they're using Databox. So they're m more than likely to mention Databox in their process of how they do it, right? So that's, that's how it all started was just reaching out to our early customers back in 2017 and ask them, hey, how are you doing this thing? The other side of that is we're very thoughtful about which questions we're asking them so we can frame it in the way that we want. So like we, you know, we, we build surveys for every single article that we write. We usually ask like one open-ended, although it's kind of evolved and we ask more now, but for a long time we were asking like one really open-ended question that we wanted them to go into detail on. And then we would add like several multiple choice questions so we can get some quantitative data. Like how often are you reporting? How many tools are you pulling data from? And all these things, right? So if we got 100 responses, we could say out of 100 people, like 60% are using more than 15 tool or whatever. So we would craft these surveys very carefully and be thoughtful about like, all right, this is the article that we want to write. These are the kind of responses we want to get. So really, like, it's just about designing the survey in such a way that, you know, you're going to get the type of responses that you, that not, not that you want, like, we're not telling them what to say, but we're positioning the article for them and saying like, here's what we're trying to write. Here's how we're hoping that you could help. Please provide as much detail around this question. And so, 
Yeah. And then if there was responses that were like wildly off topic or something, we obviously, you know, wouldn't include those and we would let the person know why. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about having reaching out to the right people, which I could talk more about. Early days, it was customers. Then it evolved and probably cannibalizing your next questions here. But then it evolved into like, okay, who are the people that we know would make good customers of Databox? Marketing agencies, software companies, e-commerce companies, people that have like really sizable tech stacks, right? Which means they're pulling data from a lot of different places. So we knew we had great, especially at the time, agency customers. That was like our, our really like our foothold in the early days was marketing agencies. And so we would go reach out to other marketing agencies and then eventually SaaS companies and e-com companies. And we're not pitching Databox. We're saying, hey, Camille, like I'm writing this article for Databox about how, you know, how brands measure like their content efforts, right? Like, is it just traffic and leads or like everybody's doing something unique? Love to include your insight because like we respect the team that you're building over there. We'd love to include a quote from you in the article and, you know, throw a link back to Dooley. Is that cool? And the outreach, I mean, we would do like warm outreach like that on LinkedIn and the response rates were insane because we're not pitching anything. We're just asking, can we quote you? And marketers are self-promotional by nature. So we had always had really good response rates from that. So it's, I guess it's three things. Yeah. Or two things. Yeah. You're making sure that we're asking the right people. Early days, it was customers. Then it was like people who would make good customers. So it's like kind of like ABM-ish kind of, except we're not pitching the product or anything. And then making sure we're asking the right questions and doing those two things, I think, ensure that the point of view, the positioning was always sort of like aligned. Like we wouldn't just open it up to anybody. Yeah. Like anybody who's in market, like answer this question. Cause then we would just get all kinds of different answers. Like we were very specific about who we want to answer these and then which questions we're asking them. Yeah. And that sort of like summarizes like the importance of strategy at the beginning and taking the time at the beginning to create content to make it easier downhill. So to recap some of the things that you said for why this works and how to make this work, it's you included customers like early days that helps you with your point of view and at least the benefit that you add to the story, right? But you're not pitching anything, right? You're not saying it. What your customers say about you is more powerful than what you say about you. So it's a high leverage activity in that you're kind of doing customer stories at the same time, right? Like, uh, yeah, you're, especially you in the early days, yeah. You can then, yeah. Yeah, that you can then like leverage for ads. You could ledge that leverage them for customer stories. So it's a high leverage activity when you do content this way to, to include subject matter experts w- that are already customers. So you're doing that. And then you also said ABM-ish, right? Where you're including <laughs> the types of people that are in your ICP, right? Whether it's like role or logo, people that you'd love to be associated with. So that helps with the credibility. So you're kind of starting to create a community around what you'd like it to be that way. And then you have the, you're taking the time to create the surveys and the questions that are going to help frame the story, both for the the keyword or the cluster like type strategy that you're doing, but also for you as a product, like what are things that we solve? So going back to the Ahrefs framework that they use, right? Where it's like the three, two, one of how, what's the overlap between this problem that we're talking about and how well our product can solve it, right? So sol- starting with those types of those types of keywords and those types of topics, it sounds like is what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good 
That's a good summary and representation of it. Yeah. And uh, the huge benefit of the ABM-ish style was that, yeah, you're reaching out to people who would make great customers. You're getting introduced to them. You're engaging with them. You're publishing their quotes on the Databox website. And now they're much more inclined to come check out Databox. So it was kind of like this flywheel of first we asked our customers, then we'd ask people who weren't our customers. They would contribute. They would be on the site. They would check out Databox. And, you know, especially early on, it really helped us gain traction with like the right people before you have like the domain authority or the brand to just be like, we put something out and people care. Like that doesn't happen like, you know, in the first couple of years of when you're launching anything new. So this was like a way to kind of jumpstart it and it worked. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because it's basically building in public and people now think about that as as social media, right? Where you're posting what you're doing every day and how you're helping people and the event that you ran and who was at that event, right? All of that, like building in public, but you were doing that early days with blogs. So I think that's an interesting way for people to think about this is like, how can you build in public and how can you involve the community in more things that you're doing and how can that turn into a flywheel? So I think we're I think we've pretty much covered like a bunch of different points for the why, right? Like why would you do a strategy like this? I think if I'm playing devil's advocate, the thing that I'll bring up that someone might be thinking in the audience is, but can I go faster if I, you know, if I'm just hiring writers at $100 an article to pump things out? Like can't I can't I go go faster and get that that quantity that I need to to hit the views that I need, mm. to hit like the monthlies that I need. So, so talk about that. Like, why do you need subject matter expertise? And um, what's like the pace look like with something like this? Yeah, well, first I would say Databox at one point, we were publishing six posts a week. So if anybody wants to to <laughs> to spar on the, you can't scale this, at Benini84 on Twitter. I'm happy to chat with you about this because it used <laughs> Yeah, we were publishing more, I mean, uh, like six days a week. The only reason we scaled down was because we had other content, podcasts and other things that we were trying to produce. So it certainly can be scaled. Maybe certainly not early on. You have to build it up so you can move fast. So that's a thir- first thought. What, what was the bigger question that you asked? So subject matter expertise, like why Why do you need subject matter Why is matter it important? Expertise? Yeah, I think volume for the sake of volume is pointless, right? If well, we just need something we could scale, we need to move quick. Go ahead. Like, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. Hire a bunch of writers, write really surface level, single point of view pieces of content around the subjects that you think your audience cares about and go nuts, dude, publish 10 times a week. But volume alone isn't going to get you there. So the subject matter expertise part, you're just, th- I mean, there's, there's a lot of things happening there. One, again, the expertise about your product and your space, it's not always internal at your company, your block, your marketing team, your engineer, like you guys are listening to customers so you know what to build, right? And there's certainly people inside of companies that have more domain knowledge than others. But a lot of times the people that have the best view of everything are the people using your product and the customers and the, you know, the people that would be using your product that are having the pain that you saw. So by having them tell the stories or at least including their quotes and you're more of now a reporter rather than a columnist just talking about your opinion and this is how people should do things and instead you're going and getting real quotes, you're publishing more honest content and more helpful content. Like we've had people for years now being tell us that like your blog is the most helpful. We might not have the biggest blog, the most traffic, the one that's included in roundups all the time and things like that. But it's one that we often hear is like helpful because people will just scan through all the responses. And be like These are people just like me having the same issues. 
talking about how they solve them. And it's just more honest content. And it's actually helpful rather than if I had my team sit down and be like, hey, go Google like really surface level tips about how to do a reporting meeting and, you know, write an article and let's try to get it out tomorrow. Like it might even rank and stuff, but it's just, it's empty calories. So yeah, what's why subject matter content? I mean, you just have more honest and helpful content, right? And the other side of it is when you're, when you're having these people participate in your content, they're then, they are then going to go share it. So you have sort of like built-in distribution where if I quote 15 people in an article, those 15 people are going to go tweet about it or post it on their LinkedIn. And especially in the early days, or even if it's not early days and company's been around for a while, but you're still struggling to gain traction with content, like that's huge. Having that sort of built-in distribution is really important. And you're not just waiting for like the magic at Google to happen in three months or six months or whenever, right? So there's a lot of really good things from the standpoint of it just makes the content better and more honest to you have built-in distribution with all the people that you're mentioning and you're actually building a network. And then as that list of people begins to grow, 10 people becomes 25, it becomes 75. The year down the line, you might have a thousand people on that list that have contributed to your content. All of a sudden scaling at that point becomes a lot easier because you have all these people to get quotes from. And the more you have, the quicker, you're able to sort of wrap new post ideas, the quicker you're able to get them written. And so while it takes time, you could certainly scale it. But yeah, I certainly, certainly wouldn't advocate volume just for the sake of volume. I think it's important. I think subject matter expertise is always important. And, uh, you know, I, I post about this a lot being more of a reporter than a columnist, like report, do the research and report on the people in your space and how they're solving problems. Don't just stand on your soapbox and do you know, half hour research and then write about a topic. Like it's just not going to be the same. Yeah. I want to zero in on one sentence that you said of you hear that your blog is the most helpful from customers. Right. And so for, for any content marketers listening to this, is not the goal. Like the goal should be to be the most helpful resource on the internet. And so that when people come to it, they're like, yes, this was what I was looking for. And in theory, and I do think this usually happens, Google is also trying to rank that type of piece the highest, right? They're trying to put the most helpful answer at the top. And so if you look at it that way too, you don't have to think so much about the algorithm and the technical details. If you're being, if you're the most helpful content formatted in the most helpful way for people, and you're including people that, again, like you said, are just like them, then it gives them the context. I talk about this a lot as contextual content is how I started thinking about it is, can I see myself like in this content? Yeah. Like the best form of learning, right? Is applied learning is me going out and can I take what you wrote down here? And can I just go out and do it myself? And in, that, in the absence of that, can I at least see that someone else was able to do it themselves? And can I see their playbook? That like becomes like the most helpful content for people. So I think if nothing else, like anyone listening to this is Aim, aim to be the most helpful resource on a specific topic, right? On a topic that, you know, obviously relates back to your product, relates back to the mission. But if you, if that is the goal, then you're probably including subject matter experts, right? right. And so that I think covers off on the why. Unless you have like a decade of experience, I mean, you don't need a decade, but unless you have like really deep domain expertise, and in which case those people can pull off being columnists, right? Because they have a lot of stories they can tell. They have a lot of experience. But a lot of times, especially on content teams, 
writers don't always have that experience, right? They're being hired because they're talented writers or they have experience building a content program. So to have them sort of have to do that, you know, be the subject matter expert too and write, it's hard, right? And it's, I think it's rare. It's not often that you have people that are able to do both. And so, yeah, go find the subject matter experts, be a reporter, don't be a columnist, don't force that. And then five, you know, maybe a couple of years from now, you do have that domain expertise and you can pull off like being a columnist and doing both. And you're just a more diverse, yeah, content marketer at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if anyone out there like can find a salesperson, a <laughs> very, very qualified, like very, you know, high expertise person who's been in all the different roles, who wants to become a writer at a writer's salary, like let, let yeah. me know. Because other, <laughs> otherwise, I think a good way to go about it, right, is you, you talk to the experts, you talk to the people that are maybe in these like high paying roles, they're good, right? They're, they're, right. Not, they're not looking for a writing job, but you help them like identify their expertise and clarify their expertise, right? That's what a really good writer will do is, uh, is will be a good technical writer, right? We'll be able to translate maybe an hour or two of some of, of a lot of fluff, right? To right. get like the 10% that's just like really gold content and translate that into content. Yeah, so exactly. I love the why of I'm fully bought in on we need subject matter expertise. So so let's get, get into some of the logistics. So starting from early days, talk about what this looked like. So you mentioned emailing customers a survey, right? And then you also told me about how that evolved over time. So starting with the survey, what did that look like? Who was running it? And then how did that evolve over time? Yeah, I think early days, maybe we were using like Google Forms and then we eventually you know, paid for SurveyMonkey. But yeah, it was very simple early on. We would just ask one open-ended question and some background, you know, the person's name, their job title, no no multiple choice questions at all. It was just one open-ended question. And we had a mar- you know, one one other marketer on the team that would like build the Google form, email like a segment of customers, you know, in, in HubSpot, and you know, we'd get, you know, 12, 15, the good ones, maybe 20 people to, you know, add their thoughts. And in the early days, it was just sort of like listicle format. Like we would list out their quotes. When I took over the, you know, headed the marketing team in 2017, I kind of led us more toward a path of like a more journalistic style where we ditched the listicle style and we would just write it like you would a news article, right? You're telling a story, you're including quotes. And so we got rid of the listicle style and I think it was better just readability probably better for SEO too. So yeah, we would email customers and we did that for a while. We did that for a while. We just relied on customers and eventually we sort of expanded it into like using LinkedIn because LinkedIn, it's just such a powerful social tool for like, you could just search everybody with a job title of product marketer. You could search, you know, marketing agency founder. Like there's so many ways to search and find the right people and we ended up hiring somebody on the team to basically prospect into the right people on LinkedIn and so basically do the example I was telling you before and say, hi, Camille, like I'm writing this article about X, Y, Z, like would love to hear from you because of ABC, you know, are you up for that? And if you wrote back and said, sure, then we would share the link to the survey with you. And then we started doing that at scale. And again, every single week, we would also send out an email to everyone who had already contributed in the past, um, telling them of the new 
articles and surveys that were now available to them. Like, hey, you contributed to this last article. Here's three more we're trying to write if any of them like are in your wheelhouse. And so that list, you know, of 20 became 100, became 1,000, became 10,000. And so like that list now becomes the number one channel for us getting new responses because it's so massive now at this point after five years. But we're also still doing the LinkedIn prospecting. We're, you know, we're also still asking customers. So we're still netting new contributors every single week. You know, uh, you know, I think every month it's probably close to like, I don't know, 500 or more new contributors or something like that. So yeah, that was really the how of it early on it was a simple Google form emailing just our early customers, you know, just emailing them out a link to the form, but then building that sequence where, okay, next week, we're going to email all of the past contributors and show them the new ones that we have. You know, we'd have anywhere from like 10 to, you know, 20 surveys in sort of production at all times. So people, we can get ahead on it. Right. And so we would share the next 10 or 20 with them. And again, we would send that, we still send that every single week, that email. And that list is, like I said, more than 10,000 people at this point. So those were the big levers early on email the customers, um, email a, a simple Google form and then do the, you know, promote the new opportunities to the, to all the past contributors every single week as the list continues to grow. And that, as that list grew, that so did our publishing frequency. So did the length of the articles because we got more and more contributors. Yeah. And everything sort of took off from there. Yeah, that's great. So go, going into those logistics and stuff, Haro, like I've seen Databox on Haro before. So I'm curious, like where that fit in, if that's something you still do. Any feedback on on using Haro for content, using something like help a B2B writer out? Yeah, Haro certainly has its pros and cons. Um, uh, it's, I think it's been helpful in, in maybe reaching people that were outside of our circles. Like there's ways to obviously target the right people on there, but yeah, we were able to generate a ton of responses fairly quickly when we started using Haro quality was always an issue. Like there's clearly a lot of people on there just looking for a link. And so they're doing the bare minimum in terms of a response. Um, so that, you know, qual- that's something like those require more just oversight and making sure we're only including the best ones. And there's a little more work involved because you can't just drop a link to a survey in Haro. Like you'll get booted off of there. So you have to like manually type in the questions, manually record people's answers. And so there's more work involved, but there's certainly volume there for sure. If you can, you know, sort through. And if you have somebody that can sort through and can tell the good from the bad, it's certainly a way I think to drive volume quickly but yeah, it's, you know, kind of have a love-hate relationship, I think, with Haro, just because it's, you you do have access to a lot of people, but there's also just a lot of junk on there in terms of the responses that you get back. So, but yeah, you, you do get a lot of responses if you, you know, position your question the right way. You know, we kind of became experts in that over time. It's just like anything else, an email subject line, a headline to a blog article, like the way you position the question, like will determine how many responses you get on Haro. So we started to learn which topics would really hit on there. Anytime we wrote about SEO, we'd get like a hundred responses. So over time, we just learned which topics did well there and yeah, how to position the questions to hopefully get better responses. But yeah, it's always much, I would say it's always lower quality through Haro than when we do it through our own channels. 
Yeah, it makes sense. Did you ever use it on the back end, like from the expertise end to, to link build? No, we, we haven't used it that way, to be honest. No, just just to recruit, yeah, more contributors to the content. Cool. Makes sense. On the survey, did you said that you started out by just doing one question. Did that evolve? Did you start adding more questions to surveys or were they always one question surveys? No, once we started, once we left like the listicle format and went more to like the journalistic style format, like I wanted to shift from just having qualitative like the quotes to also including some like I was like we're missing an opportunity here we're getting once like it scaled up and we were getting like 60 to 100 to 150 responses per survey it was like we're missing an opportunity here to collect some data now and and like how many tools are these people using if the post was on like monetizing your podcast or tracking your podcast like how often are you publishing your podcast which hosting platform do you use how long have you been has your podcast been around and we would ask all these questions. So then we could, you know, we would create graphics in Canva afterwards and say like, you know, 60% of respondents have been podcasting for more than three years or something like that. And it would provide like really interesting color to the article, but then it would also provide like really good insights to distribute afterwards so that we weren't just like dropping the link to the post. Instead, we would tweet the graphic and say 60% of, you know, respondents to a recent article we wrote say that they've been podcasting for more than three years and we would include like little nuggets about why that was interesting or maybe some additional context so it like it did a lot of good things for us it just made the content better you know we added all text to all those images because like we were you know we're asking questions that other people are going to type into google so now we have a graphic if people do um uh and then you know then it gave us like really good like collateral for distribution which was like super helpful so yeah, I would say that probably evolved in like year two where we started like, or like early on when we had 20 people it didn't make sense, like responding to a post. But then once it grew and scaled to like 100 plus, it was like, all right, like I said, we're missing an opportunity here. And we've been doing that ever since. And I mean, now we're running even bigger research reports. But yeah, it just it became like a no brainer once we scaled up that like, we should collect more data and it's going to be it's going to make the content like so much better. Yeah. Awesome. Makes sense. So team, you mentioned you hired someone specifically to start working community on LinkedIn, doing some of the outreach. So talk to me just about who you need in place to, to get something like this done. Yeah. I always hesitate to answer questions like these because it's like every company is so different. So I, yeah, I mean, I could share what we had, right? And some companies might be able to make that work with current people on the team. And right. So, so what we had was we had, we started with like, yeah, we had Early on, we only had, you know, it was me. And then I had one marketer on my team who was like a content marketer, who, you know, would write and things like that. And we had one prospector. So she would send the email out to all the past respondents every week. Then when we started leveraging LinkedIn, we hired another person to help with the prospecting on just specifically on LinkedIn and just like own that, you know, and reach out to X number of people a week and things like that to get more contributors to the content. And uh, so really we had the most important things were somebody to sort of manage the editorial. So assign posts out to writers, proofread them, edit them, get them ready for publication. And then having, you know, one or two prospectors who were looking for new contributors to the content through LinkedIn or various other channels, reaching back out to past contributors in an email every single week, then, you know, sort of collating all that, all that information 
creating the survey, that same person, the prospector would create the survey in SurveyMonkey, share it through the email to past contributors. The other prospector was just focused on net new, like, you know, working LinkedIn to get more people in our sort of, you know, ideal customer profile to like participate and take the survey. And yeah, so it was really grassroots at the beginning. I would say that small group of people took us really far, right? Now the marketing team is, I don't know, it's got to be over 12 people at this point. And we have a branding team that does the podcast and social, and we have the content team and we have product marketing. But at the time it was, we had two prospectors, one handling current contributors and making sure they're getting all the new opportunities, building the surveys for them, another person that just prospected for net new, and then somebody to manage the editorial on the blog. Once surveys were complete, she would export all the responses, share it with our writers, give them the assignment brief, and just like manage that whole, the throughput of basically like the blog and the editorial. So yeah, though that small team took us really, really far. Nice. No, thank you for breaking that down. I feel you in like always wanting to say it depends, right? Like yeah. <laughs> it, it depends, it depends on your industry and your like size of team and the types of talent like on your team, what people are suited to, but it is really nice to hear how you did it and what you needed to be successful. So I think that's still really helpful for folks. All right. Timeline. So you talked a little bit about how long or sorry, how often you would publish these things. So I think it was six, six per week in the beginning, or that's what you scaled to. So no, talk that's to what we built up what to. Were your yeah. quotas. Okay. I mean, so what, yeah. uh, what, how did you set goals? I guess for content, it's a good way of saying this. I mean, early on, well, how did we set goals for content? I mean, it output wasn't really a thing at the beginning that we were, we were too worried about. It was more so like how much organic traffic are we, driving, like how many more people are coming to the site, how many signups are we generating and things like that. But eventually, yeah, once we saw it working, we, you know, went from one to two a week. Uh, I think three a week is what we were doing for a long time, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And, you know, when I brought on an editorial manager, her name's Tamara, she's still with us. That's, we scaled up to like five, six a week. But the, you know, the only way we were able to do that was because the program had scaled to the point where we were getting hundreds of contributors per art or per week on all the articles that we were going to be publishing. So it was, it was, we would create a new survey. We'd be able to wrap it in a week, like in terms of like wrap the, like the collection of new responses, like that's how quick it became the whole process and how streamlined it all was. So that allowed us to continue to scale up. Then we started putting output goals on things and be like, all right, we know when we publish at least three articles a week, like we could see the impact that it has on, organic traffic, on direct traffic, on social traffic, because we're doing all these things. And so then we started attaching more output goals to it. And yeah, so that was able to get us from, I don't know, when I first started at Daybox, we were like 20,000 sessions a month to now north of 250, 250,000. So yeah, I mean, mostly from content. And then like the benefits of that is you know, you're also raising the profile of all your product pages in the homepage. So those pages also get a lot more traffic now than they did back then. But a huge assist, obviously, to the content efforts and publishing at a high frequency. Again, we were, I mean, I don't know if you want to say late to the game, right? You're kind of starting a blog in 2017. It's like, we knew we had to be unique. And then at one point, it was like, all right, we just got to publish a lot too. Like, 
frequency helps, <laughs> you know, like if you're publishing the right stuff and it's good, it helps, right? There's no way to deny that. When people say like publishing frequency doesn't matter, it depends what your goals are. But if you're just starting out and you're trying to gain traction, it definitely matters. Yeah. So, and you also mentioned early days that it was more about our signups going up, right? Are we seeing like some of those leading indicators? And so there's two parts to this. There's the conversion side of like the the blog and there's more of like the traffic and quality of the blog too. So, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this because I remember thinking a couple years ago when I visited the Databox blog that the way that you were converting some of that traffic, I could kind of see like behind the scenes of the, oh, this is probably working really well for them, right? So any insights when you were thinking about turning your blog into a like, I don't say like conversion center, but optimizing some of that traffic for conversions, some of the things that you did for anyone that's struggling with converting their traffic once you're starting to get traction on the traffic, how do you turn those into customers? So it's not about optimizing the traffic or optimizing like the page after the fact. I think that's it's too late to do that. So it's more like optimizing the actual content before you publish it. Like so we part of the overall strategy, we're publishing a lot about how people report on things, how they track performance about things, like how they monetize certain things, how they're tracking it, where they're getting data from. And so we have pre-built templates at Databox. So basically you could sign up for Databox and if you want like a content marketing dashboard that's, you know, of GA that has all the most important metrics, sessions, users, bounce rate, sessions by source, sessions by social, it's already pre-built into this dashboard. All you have to do is connect your GA account and all the data will populate. So we would write articles about, you know, certain topics that we would also have templates for that we knew were really popular with our users. So whether that was like, Facebook ads cost analysis. Okay, we know this is really popular with our users. We're going to create articles about like, you know, how you know how brands measure the ROI of their Facebook ads. How often are they reviewing the cost metrics? Do they make adjustments on their ads based on what they see or do they just sort of let it run until the determined budget runs out and then they, you know, or how do they approach their creative? And so we would create a whole slew of articles that we knew would align back to that template. And so in the post, inevitably, we're covering things about tracking certain metrics or why certain things are helpful. And oh, by the way, we have this template that you can, you know, struggling with your Facebook ads cost analysis or to determine if your ads are actually driving ROI. Here's this free template. So like our template downloads were like the biggest part for a while. uh, I mean, even to this day of our blog content, right? It was an easy, low barrier of entry into the product, free and so it was like we built our the, the survey, the questions we would ask, our whole content strategy sort of hinged around <clears throat> what kind of answers do these templates help companies answer? And then how do we ask those questions in blog for uh, sort of like a blog format so we could create the content that naturally these templates will slide right into. And so if you look at most of our blog content, things have evolved over time again, but like for such a long time, it was like heavily featured templates. And like that was what was driving conversions. So yeah, it was more so at the beginning, we were optimizing everything for conversions rather than like, okay, we have all this traffic, now how do we optimize it? I always feel like that's, it's like so much harder to do it that way. And it's, it almost feels like it's too late sometimes when you could just like bake it into the content strategically when you plan, you know, your whole strategy. 
Yeah, that that makes sense. I think uh, what I heard was like natural next steps, right? Like thinking about like, what are the natural follow-up questions that this this person's going to have? Or now that they have the examples, how are you going to help them implement it, right? And so thinking about that from the beginning of how are we going to create content around what we do, what we solve for, and then how are we going to predict like what questions they're going to ask next and have a good answer for that, right? That sort of keeps them within our sphere too of either on our site or interested in the pricing page, interested in the templates. So mm-hmm. smart, makes sense. I think we covered almost everything. Distribution, I wanted to talk a little bit more on. Would you alert like contributors afterwards, let them know that they were in the article, yeah. have, have them help promote? Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So that was another email that I actually would go out. Our prospector who handled like, you know, current contributors or past contributors, she would send an email out to everybody who contributed once the post went live. Say, you know, the article's live, a link to the article. I think I, I want to say some of the time we even like gave them a can, like a canned thing to tweet, but then we stopped because most people just do, you know, they frame it the way they want. But I think we even tried that for a while. But yeah, the email was really effective because as soon as that email would go out, we would see like a ton of tweets that day from like, oh, I'm featured in Databox's latest article and stuff like it was just like you like clockwork. So chances are, if you see that kind of stuff now, it's probably because of an email that we sent out to people, like letting them know that the article they contributed to was live. So yeah, we would always close the loop even to this day when people contribute to the article, like we follow up and let them know that it's live and obviously give them the link and that always prompts social shares. Yeah, I think this is coming full circle in the fact that it is a flywheel strategy, ultimately, right? Like from everything from what questions that we're asking, framing those around what we do, how we can help, including our customers, including people we want to be our customers, right? Or want to be associated with all of that adding to the credibility of the blog and relatability of the types of people, types of roles that you're featuring. And then, then yet the flywheel of going back to those same people and growing that list as you go of the contributors and ultimately community that you could probably turn into, you know, a Slack community or something if that doesn't already exist. So you have that going. And then you also have them excited to excited about the content because they were involved in the content to begin with. So them sharing that out with probably similar people, similar communities, right? They're probably friends with other product marketers, other content marketers, whatever it is. So I think a, a good takeaway for me from, from this episode and probably for others is just thinking about like the end in mind, thinking about how to create a scalable program and not a one-off or thinking about the business goals of we're, we're looking for more customers, right? We're looking for more community than just traffic, right? And when you have those goals, when you have like the right goals in place, then you'll make different decisions based on what's going to get you there. Because like we said, we could you could play a different game if you're going to go the traffic route, but it wouldn't necessarily convert, right? Thinking about right. conversion afterwards is not super helpful. So Anything right. else that you wanted to add to this or that I didn't cover on at community content? No, I mean, I think I think you asked a lot of good questions. I think we might have covered most of it. Yeah, if anyone has any additional questions, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. That's probably where I'm the most active and I'm happy to answer any others. Nice. Well, John, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. I will continue to bug you about questions <laughs> as, as I think we we look to like put some of these things in place. And, uh, yeah, please. 
sorry, last, last, last thing. I know I'm just like extending this ending, but learning. So was there, is there anything that you would have done different early on that you found out like unlocks that you found out later on that you started doing? They're like, ah, like, I wish I would have done that from day one. Well, I mean, the, the, one of the obvious ones is like asking more multiple choice questions, but right. We really couldn't do that until we scaled. So that's, you know, that's kind of a tougher one. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't usually look back and think of a man, if we need like, cause I always feel like they, things happen at the right time when they're supposed to, like the program might be too young. You might not have a big enough audience. You might not have enough contributors. And so the unlocks that happen later on is usually because those things start to grow or change or evolve. And like, that's when the unlocks have happened. So it's tough to say, I wish we were doing this earlier because we it couldn't, right? I mean, there, I think there's probably things we're doing now that maybe aren't even really like public yet or even widespread that could potentially be things like, you know, whether it's connecting our podcast more, like we're doing different stuff with our podcast now that seems to be working a lot. And where we actually have a dedicated team at Databox now that basically they're they don't they're not in marketing although we collaborate with them a lot that basically like prospects on LinkedIn for a future product that we have coming but it they're t- it's kind of tying everything in our content with our product but, and so I think there's probably going to be some interesting things and in, that we learn in the coming months that you know we're like man we should have been doing this earlier but otherwise I feel like it evolved at the like maturity in the timeline that it was supposed to I guess but yeah, there was certainly things we unlocked over time with like sharing more quantitative insights. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question, but yeah, I feel like things kind of evolved the way they were supposed to, I think. Yeah. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But right. things kind of happen for a reason. Uh, right. So it sounds like I'm going to have to have you on again, then uh, <laughs> uh, ask you yeah. some, some, some questions about what you're doing with the podcast and what you're doing on LinkedIn, but I'll let that evolve naturally. And uh, yeah. We'll chat soon. Awesome. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Content Logistics. This episode is produced by Motion, a done-for-you B2B podcasting agency for busy marketers. If you liked what you heard, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 